HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meet and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're fresh off our trip to Slow Food Nations in Denver, a festival that brought together advocates to discuss the future of food. And this week, we're bringing you a special episode inspired by the new Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto released by Slow Food USA. If we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to good, healthful food. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. Because when you're at a table with somebody, you recognize their humanity. And when somebody cooks for you and serves you food, in a way they're saying they care about your survival. How can we put things into our own hands and have the people of Puerto Rico gain real access to healthy local foods? Listen to Meet and 3 this week for our highlights from Slow Food Nations, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. This week, Greg is in Chicago with chef Stephanie Izzard. She talks about her impending move to L.A. and her search for the perfect goats in the city limits. We are also back at the legendary Dangerbird Records Studios in Silver Lake with Coleman Zerkowski, who shares tracks from his new album Zero, talks about film scoring, and the creativity he finds in commercial work. And on a sadder note, we lost another culinary giant this week. We say goodbye to the man who shaped and changed the food scene in L.A., Jonathan Gold. I personally have been following his readings, his writings, his influences, his everything since I moved to the city about three years ago and a little bit before. He's the man who inspires us to go to SGV. He's the man who inspires us to look at strip malls with a whole different way. He's the guy who just says there's a good plate of food around every corner and probably five minutes more, if not 12 minutes more, than you're willing to go. There is a huge hole in the food landscape in this city, if not the world, and we will miss him. 
We dedicate this show to him and to his writings. If you've never read his his reviews or if you've never been to any of the restaurants he recommended, I strongly implore you to go. It was always a thrill when you were at a restaurant and you would see him in the corner. You knew that you were bound to have something delicious. Again, we will miss you and we will always think of you every time we eat dumplings. So here we go. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I am sitting in the basement of Girl and Goat in the PDR. We're going to drink all this wine, right? I know. I'm like, I'm watching your face as you look around, and you're like, what is this space? What is going on here? Yeah, I always challenge people down here to drink all the wine. Nobody ever does, so we're lucky. Oh, okay. So we're going to end the show now. Get corkscrews out. <laughs> Stephanie, welcome to Snacky Tunes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also remember when I turned 21, I was going to school in Oregon, and I went into my first liquor store. And I was like, I could buy all of this. <laughs> and then earlier this year, I went out to L.A. and went into the first weed store. And I was like, I can buy all of this. <laughs> do you ever get the, like, do, does it ever get old? Do you ever see this? Like, you know, this is mine. I can just come down here, open a bottle, lock the door, disappear. <laughs> I could. I think, um, luckily, in my old age, I've learned to be in control. Um, and I, I don't even take as much home anymore, but... I know at my house I tried to have a wine cellar like this and I was like how do people even get to the point of having that many bottles because you buy a case and you drink it you buy a case and you drink it I don't know how you save up like this yeah I don't I I guess maybe you get so much but then that doesn't then you're just like this is like a waste of money yeah yeah I don't know it's like I always have like every summer I was like I'm gonna have a bar I'm gonna always have some like fizzy reds and some rosé and then the weekend's over I was like well this is gonna be really expensive I guess maybe you have to get self-control first and then, then you start then you have the wine the cellar. Yeah. Then it's just like a museum. It's true. Then you feel bad drinking it. Yeah. But you have to set aside the ones that are very special so that you don't drink them after you've had a few too many. I have two bottles that are like hidden in my apartment in case like people come over and I do. But like it's just hidden. I don't even know. I don't even know when the right time to do it. I know. Well, the thing is that any time is a great time. I've kind of given up on saving special bottles because you should just savor something delicious anytime. Yeah. And then also you always save and like it's corked or something went wrong or like you're right. like, I know how to take care of this and you don't because you're in a hot New York apartment <laughs> right. and it's like 100 degrees. Um, there's so much to talk to you about. Everyone knows your background and accolades and we're not going to run through it, but I do have one fan question. Sure. What was going through your mind when you won Iron Chef? When I won Iron Chef? Um... I, when I said yes to going on Iron Chef, I think I was so nervous because I had won Top Chef so many years ago that I didn't want people to be like, oh, well, she used to be good and be able to win something. Um, that's just where my mind goes, and that's just kind of the way I am. But when I won Iron Chef, yes, I was very excited, just sort of, um, I don't know. It was a rough, like, that last, like, couple of battles was a little bit intense. I mean... As a creative who makes a living off of creativity, does that ever go away? I mean, you have so many accolades. I mean, you if you read the paper, Google your name, anything. You have the awards. You have the books, the magazine articles, the, the businesses. It still sits with you? It does. I'm very... <laughs> um, I think it has to do with my competitive nature. I grew up as a swimmer. I'm actually, like, doing my first triathlon this summer. I'm very competitive. And so it pushes me to be competitive against myself. And so, like, even I can look at... Yes, I, there's like been some amazing things that have happened, um, but I still am trying to prove to myself every day that I, um, I just want to feel like good at what I do. So the only person you were competing against was yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. And you and you won. There you go. I mean, what and what comes with being titled Iron Chef? After all, everything you have, does any other doors open or does anything besides what comes with being Iron Chef? Yeah, I mean, every time that you enter a new market or a new fan base, you get to meet more people. So um, Food Network is a definitely, it's a different fan base than um, than Bravo has with Top Chef. Some crossover, but definitely some people that watch Food Network um, more, you know, obsessively. Um, and so you kind of enter into that world a little bit. Plus I get to befriend some of the Iron Chefs that I maybe knew a little bit before, but now I get to see them at filmings and stuff. And 
Um, I can be like, hey, what's up, Alton? Because you're really cool and you know everything. Um, so it just kind of, you know, it presents new opportunities and meeting new people. Is there a secret handshake if you're an Iron Chef? I can't tell you. <laughs> um, Brian's like, I'm going to show you how to do it after you when cameras are off. Yes. Wine cellar, just like, you know, a hot walk, and then you have to walk across it. Um, one of the things that I also think is interesting is you just put out your second cookbook. And the first cookbook encapsulates the early recipes and the development, but, but the new one is more about home entertainment. Um, and there was a good gap between the cookbooks. Some chefs will turn out like one every 18 months, the first one comes out. What was the feeling where you thought, okay, I have something new to say, and, and what did you want to say with the new one versus the, the earlier book? Uh, I mean, the first book, I think, when I got off of Top Chef, I was like, I need to write a cookbook. I'm a Top Chef now. Um, and then it kind of, I was focusing really just on the restaurants, and by the time I was getting the third restaurant up and going, I really wanted to put all the recipes from Girl and the Goat into a cookbook, because everybody asks, and I kept having to say, I'm sorry, I wrote that first cookbook a really long time ago. And there's a couple secret recipes that did make it onto the menu at Girl and the Goat, but, um, so I wanted to be able to give people those recipes, but in that home cook setting. So I don't know why there was such a time gap. I just kind of finally was like, I'm ready to write another book, and now I'm already working on my next one. So... Now I'm jumping on the train of the speed book thing, but only when I'm excited about it. I don't want to churn out a bunch of the same books over and over. Um, so the new one, I can tell you what it is just yet because we're just working on it. But um, just something else that I'm like excited to be something different on the shelves. And I like that you work with your husband on this too for beer parents. Yeah, I did. I we get a chance to work together. You could see him walking around in Goatland as well. He does all is that of the, the official name. Goatland, kind Goat, of. Yeah. I mean, they're all right next to each other, so you pe see people in goat t-shirts walking all over the neighborhood all the time. Is there a secret handshake for Goatland? <laughs> I cannot tell you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Maybe okay. I'll tell you these things later. After we, like, get through, like, you know, the, the French wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three bottles. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but he he and I work together somewhat, um, but he works with a lot of our staff about um, beer training and all of those sort of things. So I really want to incorporate that into the book. And we truly do when we entertain at home have a drawer full of beer or a fridge full of beer and Gary's very much the one that will drink a bunch of kind of summer sippers and then at the end of the day is like look at this sweet bottle that I have there's only 12 of these in existence or something like that. And when you're entertaining at home how does that differ from in the restaurant here it's like it's such a hospitality focus and like I told you before I won the best hospitality experiences here what carries over and what differentiates at least for you in the home setting versus the restaurant setting? Um, I I was going to like joke and say when people come to my house, I'm like, yeah, let's get your own drink, get your own stuff. But we, we try to be hospitable at home as well. I think when you come over our house for even just a barbecue, we had like five people over a couple of days ago on the 4th of July. Um, and you still come over and there's a whole spread of like dips and chips and veggies and all this stuff out when you walk into the house and always make sure everybody gets a drink in their hand right away. Um, so I think it's just kind of more of a lifestyle of being hospitable. I like to get a, I call it like getting a little Martha Stewart at home where I, I don't just put things like out in like stainless steel bowls and in quart containers. It has to look beautiful. There's no like, like just take the lid off of the, the Tupperware and just put right. it over there. Yeah, there has to be a theme going on. Oh, what was the, well, I guess, what, what was, was there a theme for the fourth besides the fourth? There was, I guess we didn't really have the best yeah. theme for that one. It was pretty simple, but um, my son's birthday party was just like a month before that and we had a pineapple theme. And so we had like, you know, a bunch of pineapple in the food and pineapple things everywhere, which is hospitality, the sign of hospitality. So it was fitting. Wait, pineapple is the sign of hosp hospitality? Hospitality, yeah. I didn't explain, please. It just did. It's just the symbol of hospitality. Wow. I don't know why or yeah. how that became, but yeah, it's true. And for yourself, do you feel that um, you get to relax at home or do you think people expect like they come with like, oh, 
we're going to Stephanie's house. Like, this is like, girl, like, we don't have to pay. This is like really good. Or did you, was that something younger and like you evolved into as you got older and more hosting or, or how do you differentiate yourself personally? I think my friends have come to realize that I'm not going to go like all out on the food when they come over. But I do, basically what I do, especially on a day that the restaurants are closed, is I kind of go shopping in the restaurants in the morning and I go and I grab a bunch of different sauces and stuff and I kind of mix and match them on two different proteins, and we always use our grill at home, so it does have a flare of grill and the goat with the wood fire. Um, so they'll get some flavors from the restaurants, not because I spent like three days cooking, because I went and like shopped at the restaurants. <laughs> secrets revealed. Yeah, secrets it's revealed. It's so easy to entertain a home. First step, um, get three restaurants <laughs> and your own commissary, and then just get prep chefs, and then, yeah, Good. barbecue anytime. Yeah. Yeah, just no Saturday for 30, no problem. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that I love that you do here is the Fold Market Fe- uh, Harvest Fest, which is so great because it's really a food festival for locals, by locals, with some guest chefs from out of town. Um, it's entering into its third year. Uh, what are some of the things that you've learned entering your third year on how to feed all those thousands and thousands and thousands of people? And oh, my I, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that's ta- it's taking hospitality to a whole other level, but what I think is cool about the about Harvest Fest. So Paul Kahn and I both kind of had the same idea that we wanted to do a festival that was different than other ones in Chicago. And that's sort of where it started. Um, But when you take people that own restaurants and really celebrate hospitality, and that's like their number one goal, and they put on the food fest. And they're also chefs that participate in a lot of food festivals and know what it's like to be part of a food festival that's kind of, you know, not supporting you in the right ways and is unorganized and such. We really... um, push it to try to really support the chefs, give everybody like this really fun time that's focused on food, focused on music, um, and is really focused on great food, not just festival. I mean, there's some fried not items, but it's not just like, you know, it's not the same. Uh, Darren and I used to do um, barbecue blowouts, our event series for 10 years, and we kind of found out the magic number for just a singular chef was like about 300 portions. Um, and someone once told that after 600, you're getting like meat on a chip. Uh, we also found out that a lot of chefs, and I don't think a lot of people know this, don't get paid for this. They kind of have to put in their own money. So we always paid them everything. If you were to give advice for someone to start a local food festival, what would you say to get all the chefs to come in and say yes? Like what would be like you would be a hero to them above all else? Um, I mean, I think what our chefs appreciated about it last year was it was just a lot of fun. And there's a lot of chefs also that have families now. And a lot of food festivals, food and wine festivals don't allow kids this is family friendly so they can bring their families with them and their kids can hang out um like at aspen food and wine which i absolutely love you can't bring your kids into the tent or anything um so it's kind of a bummer but um we just try to make sure everything for their demo is ready exactly as they want it they don't have to worry about it at all we make sure all their prep is done for things like that i mean the food tents are different we do have a lot of i think we made like a thousand portions of each thing last year but we're selling them so it's just supporting your restaurant um it's just kind of an extension of your restaurant for the day um, but yeah, I think it's just like giving people expectations and having them come and like feel super supported. Do you think the model has changed? I mean, you've been a chef for a long time and you've seen the shift of where chefs are now versus even 10, 15 years ago. Do you think because chefs have now gained such a cultural status that people approaching them, it's not like we're giving this to you. You should thank us for the marketing. You should thank us for the publicity that the, the power has been back in the chefs to redefine how they participate and, and engage with these type of festivals? Yeah, you know, I've had, um, I remember years ago I had a well-known chef say that he was no longer going to do one of the, I don't want to name names, or the festival. He's like, I'm not doing that festival anymore. Like, they don't pay me to be there. You know, what's going on about that? And I was like, oh, I, I mean, I go because I I think it's fun. Um, and there is some marketing behind it. But I like doing festivals that also have a charitable component. So 
for our fest, we do raise money for different charities. Um, and each year we try to pick different ones or Pilot Light, which Paul Kahn is part of, we like to support. Um, so just feeling like you're putting in your time and something good is going to come out of it for someone else on the other end, I think is important. And honestly, like I pick and choose festivals based on places I want to go and like where I'm going to have personal enjoyment. Um, because chefs are so busy and we don't get a lot of time off. So when you go on a trip to go to a festival, it needs to be like a little bit of like a vacation-y type thing as well. Where's your favorite, oh, we, don't, we won't pick favorites, but like say top five, you don't say where it is in top five, place to go for food festivals. Um, I mean, Aspen will always be, that food festival is just amazing. It's a beautiful place to go. Um, Pebble Beach is really beautiful. Um, Miami is a different kind of food festival. Um, like as far, you know, it's like got a totally different feel, but any reason to go to the beach, like for work, like, oh, you guys, I have to go to Miami this weekend. It's really. Yes. And I won't be there for prep and I won't be there for service. Um, and I, I just won't be there at all, but just, uh, I'll get on the plane. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's not really any food festivals that I've gone to in a place where I haven't enjoyed it. I love, I went to Austin food and wine this year, which I loved because Austin is such a cool, I just wanted to go and just yeah. check out the city somewhere. And I loved it. So they have that hot luck festival that is uh, Aaron from Franklin Barbecue and the um, and Moody started. That is also really fun. Oh, cool! And anytime that Austin is not South by and it's a little less crowded, it is the most enjoyable city. Yeah, I think it's becoming it's so popular that what there's one person moving there every two seconds or something ridiculous. They say that's such a fun fact. Um, yeah, I think we have to look up that fact later so that we can repeat it to others properly. But um, it is becoming like a little bit overly crowded. I think, and I hope that. It just holds on to that charm of being just all kind of, you know, a smaller, lower city, I guess, that just feels cool, and you walk around and find all these hidden gems everywhere. We're going to take a quick musical break, play a song from the archives, and then we'll be back with Stephanie here on Snacky Tunes. For miles, I've been walking for days. Looking for that lady that would only imagine. She stands real tall in a long black dress. She's a real cool lady who sells that grass. Yeah, there. 
smoking weed and I smoking grass. Dancing with the devil, never coming back. The future's made out of fortune, feelings of fear. So I think the biggest news is that you are coming to L.A. Oh, yes. Um, you had another look. Was there other big news? You're like, what do you know? What have you heard? I know. I was like, what? Wait, no, no. You, you, you first, and then yes. Yes, L.A. That's, I thought you were going to say that. Um, I mean, so many questions about it, but what is it that you see in L.A. as the next place for you and your restaurant group? Because this is the first place you're going outside of Chicago. Yeah. You could have gone anywhere. We started looking at other cities, and it's... It's picking a city that I think will be welcoming to me and the brand um, and doesn't, I mean, every city scares me a little bit because I'm so used to Chicago, Um, but I started spending a lot more time in LA because of Iron Chef and because of other filming things, and each time that I go, I start to actually venture out a bit more and get to know the city more, which I still have a lot to learn because it's a huge city, Um, but I used to just like go and I would just be, they're like, all right, you're staying in Hollywood and you're not going to leave that area, or you're staying near Beverly Hills and not, and I, so I didn't know LA, and now I'm like, oh, Venice is awesome. You know, there's so many cool parts, and you need to get to know the locals, and they show you where to go. Like, John and Vinny are great about showing, like, where it's cool to go. Um, So once I started to get to know the city better, then when the opportunity came up for the space in the Arts District, I was really excited because I'd gone to eat at Bestia a couple years ago the first time, and I pulled up, and I was like, where are we? Like, what part of L.A. is this? This is so cool. And then it turned out that a space, like, you know, however many, not too many blocks away, opened up. It, I mean, Bestia really got the jump on the, on the new wave. I think, like, them and Baco America. I mean, Bestia, you cannot eat there at 8 p.m. forever. Six, oh, no. six or ten, fine. But 8 p.m., somehow, it's just completely taken. And it's really, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about L.A. and, and New York and uh, Chicago on this show. Chicago and New York, you walk around, you can see it. I mean, where we are, I mean, something has to be in the water in this part of town, Chicago, because every place here is amazing. But L.A., there's so many hidden gems, and there's so many places, incredible restaurants you can just drive by. Uh, how have you gone about discovering the different places? No word of mouth, or is it Chef Friends, and is it just you know the new American restaurants, or have you dipped into Little Ethiopia, or uh, you know uh, Koreatown, or all those other places? Um, definitely just asking Chef Friends. That's where I am. Antonia from Top Chef is one of my go-tos. for. T- I just text her, where should I go eat tonight? Um, I think that that's the best way to get to know where to go into a city. And I do need to dip my feet more into, I usually go to a bunch of, you know, what's the hot new restaurants just because I'm trying to check them out. Um, but we're going back there in a few weeks and I want to do more of just going into the neighborhoods and going to places that have been there forever. Yeah. Um, I mean, Koreatown, I went to David Chang's new restaurant the last time I was there. Um, and it was, I would say that's my favorite of his restaurants. I had an amazing time. Um, 
but I want to go to places that have just been there forever. So I need to do some more asking around to my chef friends. Be like, no, seriously, like, where are these cool places that you go? I mean, there it's so incredible in the San Gabriel Valley, and like, just it's so expansive and so amazing, and such deep history and and riches, and all the new places coming in are great too. But I think it's one of those things because there's so much space, you do get the education of the old school, stayed there forever, loyal customer base, and then the new new like like David. Um, I know produce is going to be a factor in uh, opening a restaurant in LA. They you know, claim best produce in the world, and they're very, very much correct. <laughs> How will that factor into the menu, and what might change, and what are you bringing from Chicago, and what do you think will be available to you out there that you weren't able to do here? The longest question that ever existed. Um, we are going to bring some staples from the menu, like pig face, if I can find enough pig heads there. Um, we'll bring some goat items. I'm trying to find a goat farmer in LA. Um, I think the... Pause. What is the process in finding a goat farmer in L.A.? <laughs> and can you convince someone to raise goats for you? I'm first going to try from some goat farmers that I'm, like, finding through purveyors out there. Um, and if it doesn't taste as good as our goat here, I might have to see if someone can raise some goats for us, which I need to do this, like, fast, um, because the goats obviously need to be raised. But um, the goat that we get here in Chicago from the local farm, it tastes very different than goat does from a lot of places it doesn't have that funkiness that you need to cover up with heavy sauces and such it's just purely delicious so I'm really hoping that this first sample that I found through like Antonia's meat purveyor um happens to be great and then I'll be like check that off the list of things to find and I was like and I need like 90 pig heads a week um that's what we go through here I don't know if people in LA will eat as many pig faces as people eat here but yeah I'm so curious I'm curious if like the offal uh makes it all the way out there if, yeah. that, if they're as adventurous yeah I mean pig face is in all intents and purposes, it's just like a bit. It's just like eating bacon or pork belly. It just happens to be from a different part of the animal. Darren but, taught me to uh, if you ever go to a full pig roast, try to get someone to cut the, the first the cheek, cheek for you. So they'll always save the second cheek. But if you can get it, you can you can do it right. Yeah, the cheeks are great. I mean, look at that. You know, um, so taking some staples from this menu. But I, LA is a different place. You know, it's and not necessarily that because it's LA, it needs to all be. Um, you know, fat-free, gluten-free, light, things like that. I've What I've learned over my trips there is that people are still down with eating some really great food and, like, lots of flavor and lots of, um, you know, there can still be some richness to it. But because the local produce is so great, we can have just a more bountiful vegetable section and just more veggies on all year round. Here, our spring was about, there was a one week, one week that we could get local English peas this year. That We, like, got them and they're like, oh, sorry. They're gone. It's like, oh, okay. Is there anything that you wanted to cook with or any ingredient you wanted to cook with here you just could not get enough of that you think that you'll find an abundance out in L.A.? I mean, I think just being able to use the local spring things or things that we call spring, like, all the time. I remember once I went to L.A. in, like, January, and I had this strawberry rhubarb dessert at some restaurant, and I thought to myself, I was like, God, I hate when places use things that are so out of season, like, how bizarre. And then I go to the farmer's market the next day and totally had to bite my tongue. I was like, oh, it's here. Oh, it's local. like, shoot. Like, yeah, shoot. They have this now. Um, where we have those things for such a short amount of time. So, I mean, it's everything across the board, every type of produce possible, aside from potatoes and apples, that we get here, you know, <laughs> that our farmers kind of hold on to all year. I'm excited about. I wonder, like, what dishes will be created out there that might make its way back to Chicago? Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm so used to the restaurants being um, blocks away from each other. So I'm trying to figure out, I think I'm going to be FaceTiming a lot with my, I'll be going out there monthly anyways for at least a week a month. Um, once we get things rolling, I'll be spending like a few months in the beginning. Um, but then I think I'll be FaceTiming me like, look, I'm making this sauce. Stir it. <laughs> Oh, put a little, yeah, nope, nope, that was too much salt. Um, you know, just kind of watching them cook. 
I mean, you're such an experienced chef, but have you been asking your other chef friends who have done this type of out-of-market or out-of-city, out-of-state expansion, have you been asking them for advice? And if so, what advice are they giving you, both solicited and unsolicited? Um, I haven't been asking, but because I know that I just, my restaurants are set up a little differently than other chefs that have multiples, and not because... My chef de cuisines are just different. So I have um, chefs that run the restaurants. Girl and Goat right now actually doesn't have a chef de cuisine technically. Um, but I still do all the menu creating at Girl and Goat and I have for all eight years. So just different that when chefs start to have multiple restaurants, they have other chefs that create for them. And it's not because I'm an egocentric person at all. It's just the, it's like why I do this for a living because I like to create things. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how I make that sort of step into um, working more as a team on things and being able to a little bit model after other chefs, but I don't think I'll ever reach that point where I have chefs that fully just create their own menus and I'm just like, see you later. Yeah, thanks so I'll much. I'll be at the beach, bye. Like a game of telephone. Yeah. You can always tell when like the person, well, when it's not done well, you always know it's like, well, they haven't been here in six months. Right, which I've experienced and I think that um, you sometimes you go to a restaurant and you're like, I know that chef and I know that they haven't tasted this. Um, so I have to figure out a way for it to work, but I know there's some chefs that have done it really well and it's, I actually was talking to Michael Simon about it and he has, um, some trusted people that have been in with him for years and you just kind of move the trusted people to, you want to make sure you leave someone great where you're leaving and right. bring someone else great with you there. Um, it's just about finding these people that you trust that really truly believe in it as much as you do. So I know he has those people on his team and that's how he's been able to do really great at expanding. We'll see. You were here through the Chicago modern renaissance and saw, I mean, this area has really developed to be such a culinary uh, center, and L.A. is also going through it right now. What do you see that L.A. Uh, is bringing to the table that you have not seen in your travels or, or in other cities or even your own? Um, I mean, I think I still need to learn that more. I think I'm excited that the space that we found for the restaurant is right in the middle of the arts district, which really reminds me of this neighborhood, how it was before it kind of went through this um, renaissance, if you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, wow, I wish I had thought of that in my interview about this neighborhood I did a few days ago. Um, You're like, I need to revise a quote. I need to, yeah. Actually, please make me sound a little more intelligent. Please listen to Snacking Tunes and pull the quote from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm just excited to go there and watch that neighborhood, you know, kind of growing around us while we're there. And I feel like each time I go out, we're going out there in a few weeks, and then we'll probably go like every month for a while. Um, just kind of see things pop up each time we go. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I need to, I still need to dive in more. It's like I've spent probably a total of, if you count it every day I've been in LA, it's probably only like two months total, you know? So I have a lot of LA living to do. And what are some of the things from Chicago that you want to bring out to LA? What are some of the core values that have guided your restaurants over the year that you feel is also a, a idealized version of Chicago in? that will come to LA that you will put through your staff and through service? I think um, the hospitality that you were talking about, not that there aren't restaurants in LA that have fantastic hospitality, there truly are, but I think what makes Chicago restaurants so great is just Chicagoans, um, just being super warm and hospitable and um, making sure that we find the same people, same type of people to work with us in LA. Um, So even for front of house, it's bringing a couple of core people with us and really even taking some servers, and of course all the managers will come and spend time here, but we don't want to, I don't want to bring Chicago there in the way of, my husband is texting me, he's like, do you want to use Dark Matter Coffee there, which is an amazing coffee roaster here. I was like, no, we have to find an amazing coffee roaster in LA, because we're not trying to bring Chicago to LA, we're trying to bring, you know, the, I guess the heart of 
girl and a goat and bring it to LA and kind of find our own version of itself there. Sure. I mean, there's intangible values here and then you just run it through the LA filter, but it's still the same concept and ideals. Right. Um, well, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, where can people find you? How can they come to your restaurants? How can they stay on top of all the secret projects? Where can we learn the secret, secret handshake? <laughs> <laughs> um, you can always follow me on Instagram at Stephanie Izard, and we are, it is Girl and the Goat's birthday next week, um, our eight-year birthday. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and What's we the theme? Will, oh, my gosh. Well, we're not, we're, we do need to have some sort of party. I think we'll have an internal party and just kind of drink all this wine that's sitting behind us. Um, but we will be launching a Girl on the Go Instagram for the first time ever. We've never had one. It was always just me doing the Girl on the Go Instagram on Stephanie Eisard. So it's going to have its own Instagram so that we can cover all of the opening of LA as well. So the two Girl on the Goats will share an Instagram and talk to each other about their spaces and stuff. Follow-up question so we don't end on that. What is the decision to go into that and like what... They always talk about if you're going to be a late mover into something, make sure that you're coming with a really core concept, not just like, we should do an Instagram. What went into that decision, and, and what are the guidelines that you're putting into a new 2018 Instagram profile? We, um, it was kind of deciding that my Instagram has started to encapsulate a lot of my personal life as well as what happens in the restaurants. How dare you? Yeah. How I mean, dare you? Well, my son is so cute. I have pictures of him up there all the time. Um, I think he is. Um, and so for the girl and the girl, we don't want it to get lost in the shuffle, and this opening one is so big, and I thought, why not time it with the birthday of Girl and the Goat? Like, to me, I know we're only turning eight, but to me, it feels like 10 years. <laughs> um, so it's almost one of those, like, you're like, yes, you finally get your own thing. And at our other restaurants, we have our own. I don't know why we haven't ever had one here, um, but we're going to have a lot of... syndrome. Yeah, it's weird. Well, and also, when we opened, Instagram didn't even exist. Right. <laughs> we're like the old person that's like, what is this Instagram? What are How you does talking this work? about? What is this? What is a follower? Why would I want to put up pictures? Um, so we're going to have, there'll be a bunch of pictures from, you know, years past, um, when we put it up in the first place. But it, I think what's great is I wanted a place to be able to really showcase the entire opening and the whole project of opening LA. Um, so now that'll be the place. And what elements do you think that you will showcase? Will it be construction, dis dis dish construction, uh, meeting the suppliers, purveyors, all the stuff? Everything. I yeah. think that opening a restaurant is something that people that have never done it before still don't really like know all the nooks and crannies of, um, it's, you know, it's fun, but it's also really hard at the same time. And there are so many different details. Um, we're documenting the design portion of it um, for other purposes as well. But just because that's such a fun thing. We're working with the designer, Karen Harold, who designed this restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done a restaurant with her since. Um, so we're kind of really excited about creating a very different version for L.A. Um, but, yeah, I want to show a little bit of everything from dishes to just building, like, you know, what color walls are we going to have? In so many food documentaries, they, like, always just focus on the fun start, the fun stuff on the start of the project for, you know, designing and all stuff, but they don't be like, okay, I've looked at my 40th fork. I've looked at my 200th plate. But I feel like that's so important to people understand, like, the absolute thought that goes into all the things behind the meal and behind the service before you even sit down. Right, or even, you know trying to find all of that stuff. When we open, and this doesn't happen anymore, and it hasn't happened since, when we opened Girl and the Goat, and we had our first day of um, open open calls for servers, we interviewed over 900 people came to our open calls. And now there's so many restaurants in Chicago, that doesn't happen at all. Right. You get a couple hundred people, and you know, that's really great. Um, but I'm excited to see, just to like kind of start meeting people in L.A. and seeing um, you know, what really fun people we can find out there as well. So, I don't know. But yeah, there's so many different things that go into it. It's crazy. Okay, well, pay attention to the Instagram for the open call and yes. all the details. 
We're going to take another quick musical break from our archives, and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one of your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are sitting in the legendary Danger Bird Record Studios in gorgeous Silver Lake. And we are joined by the illustrious Coleman Zerkowski and Matt Lau from Brooklyn on the West Coast. Welcome to the Tunes. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. How are you, Darren? Uh, I am good. I'm good. How was the show last night? The show was incredible. Uh, I mean, I, I could say a lot more, but it was... Really We're going to get into it. Okay, We're going to cool. talk about the show. <laughs> cool. We're going to set it up. That was just a pleasantry. <laughs> yeah, definitely incredible. Um, so you're East Coast born and raised, born in Baltimore? Yes. Uh, Baltimore has a legendary sort of avant-garde music scene. I'm well aware. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm getting to. Uh, <laughs> How does that influence you growing up? Do you go to a lot of the shows, like you, you know, yeah, you any know, of the uh, you know, uh, what is it, Otto's Bar? That's yeah, there? yeah. That's that's a cool question because I've never really considered that ever. Because when I was in Baltimore, uh, I was it was you know age zero to eighteen, and a lot of that was being in bands. Um, but I remember my high school, there was a teacher there who was very involved in the experimental music scene in Baltimore. Uh, his name was. Mr. Wojo. And there was a... I mean, if that isn't a Baltimore band yeah. name, I don't know <laughs> what is. Um, and so there we had a... Um, when the the tsunami in... It was, it was a, hur- or a tsunami or a hurricane relief uh, concert. There was like a benefit concert. And... For Japan? No, I think it was in... Or a hurricane? What was it in 2000? You mean Sandy? No, 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 no. Um, I'm sorry. This is unrelated, but it was the one in like 2005, 2006 in uh, Indonesia. Thailand. Okay. Regardless. Regardless. But we should be disrespectful of it. But yes. um, we had a benefit concert and this guy played the benefit concert and he was a teacher. He was like a philosophy Harvard scholar and he did this concert where he wrapped himself in Christmas lights and was just screaming into a microphone yeah, that sounds about right. uh, with an upright bassist and just like feedback and I was just totally blown away because I was 15 years old and I thought it was the most insane thing I've ever seen everybody hated it but now that I think about it I think that's had a huge influence on just thinking outside the box in terms of music well I mean you also have guys like Dan Deacon yeah yeah who, of course yeah. Uh, to me sort of speaks to your music which is taking this electronic um, vibe and bass, but then also having a, a bit more like 
larger orca- orchestrated uh, sort of like scoring in what you've been doing as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that just gets, that seeps in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I actually didn't even know Dan Deacon until I, or know of Dan Deacon until I went to college and I had left Baltimore. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed out on all this music when I lived in Maryland. Um, but I would still say it's just, I think what is true is that that culture is very present there. There's a very outside the box uh, culture. I mean, John Waters that has also been a huge influence as an artist too. Yeah, I mean, Baltimore's got a lot of art, a lot of heart. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, the most fervent fans of a city of people who live there, but yes, also this the like culture underdog, so, so like balance. Yeah. Um, so then, what brought you to New York? Um, well, so I grew up in Baltimore, went to college in Chicago for my undergrad at DePaul. University. Chicago, another great music. Yeah. More Midwest heart, though. I mean, yeah. I, to me, that's like the braid, indie rock, Captain Jazz. Yeah. Sort of like Definitely meat and the... potatoes. But also the Joan of, but that also is like the Joan of Arc weirdness as well. Yeah, but I would say that was more like the people around me. I mean, I played in like, I played in a black metal band. <laughs> and I also played in uh, just punk and black metal bands. But I was studying classical music in school. And I think that was... Both of those have had a huge influence on my music. I and mean, that's pretty amazing to have, be studying that, but then also, was that a unique situation where you were playing in these black metal punk bands and things like that, and a class school? Is anyone else in your class like that? No, not really. And actually, that's what I, I felt like when I was in school. Uh, like, you know, I... Oh, you're dropping your R's on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd be like inviting people to my shows and they'd be like, I thought you made a different kind of music. You yeah. Know? I'd be like screaming in a microphone. But uh, again, I think it's all just music that's, outside of the box. And another important influence from Chicago is the hip hop scene in Chicago. Huge. Very, and it's very, very present. And when I was there, I got really into... Juke, right? Juke and, uh, yeah, footwork. Yeah. Um, I actually, but again, I got into that after I left Chicago. And I was like, I can't believe I didn't know this in Chicago. They're like, they're like, oh, you went to these shows. You're like, if you can't check, then yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but also, uh, Baltimore and Chicago, two great food cities. Exactly. I was, I was going to get to that, too. So uh, if we're going to talk about food, especially on this show, I mean, Baltimore, the food there is like, every time anybody's like, oh, you're from Baltimore, I just say Old Bay. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, I love I mean, Old one Bay. of the best meals I've ever had. Uh, the crabs. Like, we, I took the, <laughs> the bus down from New York. Mm-hmm. I was DJing at Otto's Bar. Mm-hmm. And we went to a Brickie's before. Mm-hmm. Before it closed. yeah, yeah. Did uh, the whole like mallet crabs on the table, and but now a, there's only one location and it's like at the airport. It's like yeah, sort of yeah. Weird. Well, there's there's plenty of crab places and uh, actually every summer my family and a lot of people have crab crab sort of feasts where like we just get a bushel of crabs and uh. I'll crack them open. But the thing is, it's amazing to I grew up knowing how to eat a crab and it's insane to know that people that's like so crazy to people is to break open a crab and pull all the meat out and all yeah. the mustard and it's uh it's it's pretty visceral. Yeah. Um tight. and I remember my parents we were in Seattle up in Pike's place in the market uh-huh. and they taught me how to do that at a young age. And all my friends who love food are into it, but you put somebody, it's like a classical kid at a punk show. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly, what I mean? exactly, exactly. You're like, I thought my crab comes in a can. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, well, let's get into a song, and then we'll talk a little bit more about your move to New York and uh, some of like the commercial work you've done, because there's sure. some good stuff there. Uh, what are you going to play for us first? Sh- yeah, should we talk about the song a little bit? Yeah, set it up. So uh, this is a piece from the album that I released through Dangerbird Records in February. The album is called Zero, and the... 
each track on the album is a number counting down from nine all the way to zero. That's awesome. So the first track is nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. And uh, the album is a really deep exploration of one sound moving into silence, but also a rhythmic pattern that's going very sl- like very slowly slowing down. Mm. And so maybe so you I- have to listen in order. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can listen out of order, but the album has a full effect if you listen to it from front to back. Love it. Um, and the one thing I wanted to say to listen for in this is um, there's, a, there's a rhythm in one of the organ parts that's constantly going, and that's supposed to sort of like lock you into listening to it, as well as it's an exploration of how one thing could continue to repeat and how if you change one element, how that could affect how it sounds. So well, maybe think about that. Let's get into it. What's the na- which track is this? This is seven. Awesome. Well, here we go. Coleman Zerkowski with Matt Lau here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Lawson. That was a really good performance, too. That was sweet. <laughs> Thank you for showing up. Yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate it. Um, so, living in New York, in addition to making yeah. your own music, you've also been doing some commercial work. Yeah. Which is really interesting because as a composer, someone does scoring, um, you have a chance to create original works of music. They're not just licensing songs, correct? Right, right. So, you know, sometimes commercial work gets a bad name, but... We also know that that is what allows you to sometimes do the art. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, what sort of freedom, like, what sort of things do you love about the commercial work that you maybe you don't find in making your own music? Is there a certain freedom there? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I could talk about this for a while because I think great because we have some time to fill. <laughs> but in, in the art world, I think commercial music gets it. It has this constant bad rap, which is just like, oh, it's so shallow. It's so. It's like, why even waste your time with that? It's not expressing anything. And to be honest, I, my favorite part about commercial music is that it doesn't express anything from me at all. In mm. fact, commercial work is like a craft. It's, it's, you, need, you need this track that matches this visual. Uh, make that track. And then you get notes and do revisions. And personally, I love it because it's, it's, it's distancing myself. I think in, in art, sometimes your ego can get too involved with, mm -hmm. with your work and the best part about uh, commercial music for me is that I can completely remove myself. And there have been many, many times when I've had commercials, and the thing about commercial work, particularly like advertisement, it has to be done like within... A f I've done gigs where like they called me at 11 p.m. they need a track by 8 a.m. tomorrow, and I have to write Put five... Like, on, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I have to write three to five tracks by 8 a.m., which is typical. That's actually very standard. And... Um, sometimes if I'm forced into a situation where I have to write music, it gets the wheels turning in a way that like if I was just sitting at the piano waiting for inspiration wouldn't happen in the same way. Like there's no way if you were working on your own project, you would be like, I'm going to start at 11, right. stay up till eight, right. crank out five songs. Exactly. No, no way. And it's like, because that, that pressure, but again, I, I feel like the brain works where it's like, you're still using the same tools, but you're just not expressing yourself creatively, which is another element of the brain, I would imagine. And so, like I said, it just gets the wheels turning, and I, I love it. I think it's a blast. Now, you got to work on a Three Musketeers commercial. Oh, yeah. That's one of my, that's one of my uh, top, top singles. Uh, yeah, number one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the Toyota one's the number that one. That Three Musketeers thing. That it's put a, a good track, of, though. Put a couple of rooms in this house. Yeah. <laughs> no, that one, I... It's not that it really paid well, but it was just, I was so proud of it. Like, that was a, uh, I wish everybody could see when I was writing that in my bedroom. It's like. <laughs> Were you eating the three, did you like go out to like the bodega and get a couple of I wish beers? for inspiration. No, not quite. Um, so. It's a good track though. It is a good track. <laughs> it's a good, the next, the, the next. First it's called Winter Morning, by the way, the track. First single off, do you get to name them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to. They always have to be sort of like cheesy names that imply the emotion of the. So anytime I write it, I just think of the first thing, and I was like, "Winter morning," <laughs> right? In case someone was, in case so like when it gets nominated, they see the name and they're like, "Oh my god!" Like, what a perfect, so track. beautiful. Um, so, what would you say to someone? Because it seems like you're very comfortable in commercial work. Yeah, like maybe framing it as like a way to support the artistic work. Like, Absolutely. Like, like how? What advice would you give to someone who is like, "Hey, I, first off." lucky enough to get that phone call at 11 p.m. Right, you right, exactly. Mean? Like, it's hard enough to get that type of work. So, like, what would you say to someone? Uh, I think I think my entry into that is actually pretty valuable, like, as a story. Um, I 
so I went to school at CalArts for my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And the reason I came out here was I was interested in two things. I was interested in experimental and classical music, mm -hmm. as well as breaking into the film and commercial world. And in my second year, I started doing internships for a lot of music houses, and things weren't really going well for me. I, was, I did three internships that were just completely dead ends. Mm. Uh, and one of them, I won't, I won't say which, but I, one of them I was sexually harassed at. And really? Yeah. That's a juicy story. I don't know if it's appropriate for the podcast. But we, we'll, we'll, we can get into it later. But anyway, uh, just a very, very terrible experience to the point where I never actually felt like I wanted to do music for any sort of profit again. And I just, I, I didn't feel like music was a career after that. And so I got into restaurants and I was like a busboy and uh, I got fired from a restaurant for eating a Brussels sprout. And then I got fired from a coffee shop job because I wouldn't wash my shirt. I had coffee stains all over it. I wore it every day. Wow. And, and they let me go and they said, honestly, the reason we let you go is because you didn't wash your shirt. But I can't blame them. You know, that's, that's probably me hey, being man, irresponsible. That is your line in the sand. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an odd line, uh, but it's your line. So yeah. who am I to judge? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about all these places that let me go. Maybe it's, maybe it's a me issue and yeah. not an everybody else issue. But anyway... Um, after that, everything sort of coalesced. There was this commercial uh, editing company that I had always wanted to work for, and I had a friend that worked for them. I had one interview with them, and then I had read on Forbes.com. I don't know if you know Forbes. Oh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> Forbes.com said, if you want to get a job, you need to be persistent. So I kind of took that to the next level, and I emailed them once a month for nine months. And I said, like, hey, uh, is there still a job open? Hey, how are you? There was one I was like, hey, I hope you guys are like, I talked about the Super Bowl. But then they started, I, they weren't responding. So I felt I had this like liberty to start yeah, you're making like, them a little wild. more interesting. So, uh, uh, what, was, I, what was the nine? Just skip forward to month nine email. Yeah, yeah. The last one I sent was, hey, I just wanted, because I, I always thought it'd be like cool to be funny on email, but I just like didn't really take into account how it would turn out. But I said, uh, you know, if you guys need any hand, like if you want me to like wipe down the keyboards, give you a foot or back massage, um, like take out the trash, feed you, uh, put the food in your mouth, and then just like all this weird personal yeah. stuff. And then the person <laughs> person emails me back, are you available? <laughs> and then so wow. I ended up I ended up uh, going in for an interview and they're like, honestly, you just seem like such a like weird, like cool person that we wanted you to work with us. And like, we just thought you were really funny. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because that probably lost me well, some jobs too. <laughs> the, the persistence yeah, exactly. is, the, is the takeaway. Um, so hold on, if you don't mind me finishing no, no, the, finish story. the story. So uh, I go in for an interview. I start out as the coffee guy. And it was actually kind of rough at first because I, you know, I have a master's degree in music and here I am serving coffee to advertising clients. And I felt very undervalued and just lame. I'm in there like, oh, I got your, your cappuccinos. But it's very typical for Los Angeles to yeah. be doing this. you know. So... I'm doing this every day, and then there was this one commercial, where, and I and I kept being like, you know, I, I do music, I would love to do music. And they're like, well, we don't need music. We're an editing company. We don't we don't need music. Mm -hmm. They're a video editing company. So I walked into this room, and I said, uh, I drop off the coffees, and I'm about to walk out, and I hear this guy, uh, he's one of the advertising clients. He said, I just wish there was somebody that could write this track, but like do it for cheap. 
Oh my God! Is that it was it, your Hollywood moment? Exactly, exactly. I was like, "This is it," you know. So I turn around and I was like, "You know, I could write the track. I write music." They're like, "No, I'm sorry, we need a professional." And I walk out of there, and this and you one went, no. Yeah. Well, I walk out of this and I was. I remember. I remember exactly. I was washing the dishes and I was like, "It's really not going to turn out well for me." I'm thinking to myself, like, "Here I am. I just put myself out there. And it's just never going to happen." And a guy comes out of the room and he's like, "You have your master's in music, right?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, "I mean, why not give you a shot? It's like you you could do this, and if we could do it for cheap." I I mean, we'll do it for cheap, but uh, if you want to write something, like we have nothing to lose. So I was like, okay. And it ended up being they wanted a Bernard Herrmann track. You know Bernard Herrmann? Mm-mm. He did all the music for Alfred Hitchcock's there we go. films. And I love his music. And it, I just, ev- everything had been leading up to me preparing for this moment. So I took it home, and it was. I got home at 8 p.m. that night, and I delivered, uh, I delivered the track. It was a 30-second track for an NBC commercial uh, the next morning. Totally just knocked it out of the park. Like every, I put my whole life in that, that thing. The CSA stuff. Yeah, and so I brought it into work the next day, and they were just completely floored. I wasn't in the room, but I was told from multiple people that people's mouths just dropped. And it's because it's like that's what I do, you know. And it's like I, I believe if you get yourself in an element where you do what you enjoy doing and have fun, then people respond to that. I'm just gonna say this because it's the record. Hands down, one of the most inspirational stories I've heard on this radio really? show. Oh, cool. <laughs> the emails, the persistence, the putting yeah. yourself out there. Yeah. Let's hear another song. Oh. Ooh, that was a good story. Cool. <laughs> on the record. That's the story you send to your mom. Yeah. No, I mean, I will say about my parents, uh, they gave me such a hard time about studying music, and they're like, why don't you get a real job? Or, you know, they considered me getting, another, a real job. getting another degree. And then as soon as I got that commercial, they're like, we told you you would make it. And oh, like, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Yeah, well, we got some. Well, we got some words for off, off, off the air. So, what do we got now? So, uh, oh, not to say I, I love my parents. By oh the way, oh my god, of course, I love my parents too. Um, this is another track from Zero. Uh, it's a percussion piece, and same idea is to think about rhythm changing. Okay, and what's the title? Which track? Oh, I'm sorry, it's five. Perfect. All right, here we go. Live on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. org. Coleman Zerkowski with Matt Lau, Dangerbird Record Studios.
Yeah. Ferocious. So you're out here to celebrate the film score turned album for the Project Zero, which was put out on Arthur King Presents. Shout out to Arthur King. Yes. Um, and this is part of your opus of film scoring. And you've done a bunch of composing and things like that. You did for Netflix and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is uh, I will say this is a little different this this sort of this album was a flip of the script it's a, it was an album first and then became a film very nice yeah way to inspire yeah real flip of the script yeah um, what approach do you take when scoring a film is it a little bit more of a mix of the commercial work versus artistic stuff because you got to pull in it's like more of a collaboration or is it like hey we have a scene uh, well actually that's why I made Zero is that as much as filmmakers, film is much more of a creative realm than commercial work. Like commercial is very much like a craft. Yeah. No yeah. film exactly 30 seconds. Yeah, exactly. Although uh, one could say that commercials are many films. <laughs> there are people that believe that. Yeah, I, 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 you know. But uh, films are, there's a lot more creative freedom. And, but people never seem, at least with music, a lot of filmmakers I found in my experience never take the liberty to have it be as co co collaborative because a lot of filmmakers have a vision. They want to see that vision. And so a lot of films that I've done will be like, hey, I want this song from this movie and I want that song and I want that song, but I can't buy them. Can you make something that sounds like them? Mm. Or it'll be a scene that's like, you know, I want this emotion. I want this feeling. But a lot of it is like reference tracks. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to make something where film and music were on the same plane where it was much more of a, coll a collaborative thing but also like the billing is the same it's not because it's, film it's always the director is the main person sure. you know? a Wes Anderson film a Gus Van Zandt film but I wanted or this the to be director of Godzilla what's that? <laughs> <laughs> terrible joke but I wanted this to be something where composer and filmmaker are on complete equal plane and you're experiencing film and music all at once instead of just because any most of the time in film too it's like there's a visual and music is enhancing the visual sure and i wanted this to be an experience you get all at once but i mean i feel like some of the best films the music just elevates it yeah to a whole other level yeah uh i mean all i would say the best scenes and movies mm -hmm. It goes without saying, or needs to be said. I would then. Yeah, they have the best soundtracks. Well, and I'm I'm sure a lot would agree with this, but a huge inspiration for me musically has been 2001: Space Odyssey as a film. Oh yeah. I mean, the last sequence of that film, I saw that, and that was a big inspiration for Zero. Is that you're you get to a point where you're just listening to music and looking at visuals. It's it's actually like totally what I wish Zero could do. And there's like no dialogue. There's no nothing for what however long that end sequence is. Yeah. Like 15 minutes long. It's awesome. Yeah, which was revolutionary. Yeah. Um, and so with the release of this, uh, are you taking it out? Like, are you going to play it like sequentially, like nine through zero out as a show? Or like, how do you perform something that's written for the album? We're supposed to listen to it in a very specific way and then translating it live. Well, so also making a film was a logistical thing too, because there's a lot of musicians involved in the, in the album. There's probably like 20 musicians involved. And so I wanted to tour this thing, but I didn't know how to get 20 people or I didn't have the money to afford 20 people to move around with me. So I made it into a film because that could be easily spread as far as possible. Of course. So this year, uh, last night was actually the last show of this self-funded tour that I did, which I went to. Basically, I reached out to all my friends in as many cities as I knew, and uh, some in Europe, some here, 
And just whenever I could afford a plane ticket, I would go, we would organize a show, and I would screen the film and usually do some sort of performance or just introducing the film. I feel yeah. like in art, people respond if they just know your personality. And a lot of it was just going out there and being like, hi, I'm Coleman Zerkowski. If you want to talk afterwards, we can. And then presenting the film. And it's had a uh, really great impact. Or not, not impact, but a really great result. And I Say think, impact. Okay. I, Don't I mean, undersell yourself. I mean, I just think a lot of, a lot of good has come out of it, i.e. this Danger Bird thing. Yeah. And Danger Bird pushed me to do the live thing, which I was really originally against, but then it's been really... But I mean, really those, great. Those yeah. guys are the kings of, yeah. of video and music. Yeah, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Well, I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song. But if people... Yeah, I'm sorry for talking. Don't apologize. <laughs> no, don't... I love apologizing. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, we definitely are. Uh, have Hungarian boys uh -huh. back on <laughs> Apologize all the time. Are you a hypochondriac, too? Not a hypochondriac, but a, a, a lot of things are my fault. Okay. <laughs> uh, until they're not, then I'm like, it's your fault. <laughs> uh, so where can people enjoy the film? Where can people listen to the music? Where can people get the album? So the album is going... It, the album is definitely available on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Mm. And YouTube as well. Um... And I just did a self-funded vinyl release of the album, but there's only 100 copies. And that's going to be available on my Bandcamp, colemanzerkowski.bandcamp.com, relatively soon. Awesome. Uh, so keep a lookout for that. But also, I'm trying to keep the film offline as long as possible until hopefully somebody else uploads it. I don't want to put it online. Uh, but if you purchase the vinyl, it comes with a DVD of the film. Beautiful. Yeah. And stay tuned for more uh, Arthur King Presents, because they have... Some cool things in the pipeline. Definitely. Uh, what's the website? What's the Instagram? Where can people go to see you online? So, colemanzerkowski.com is the website. You so want to spell that? C-O-L-E-M-A-N-Z-U-R-K-O-W-S-K-I, period, C-O-M. Thank you. Thank you for that last part, too. Definitely, definitely. And then my Instagram is at DJ Versace, but Versace is spelled V-E-R-S-A-C-I. Oh. Yeah. How'd you get that? Uh, when I actually lived in Los Angeles, I performed a lot of shows as DJ Versace. I thought it'd be funny if I moved to Los Angeles and became like a, a DJ named DJ Versace, and then I actually did it. And uh, But I'm kind of dropping that now, but it's still my Instagram name. Love it. Okay, great. Well, what's the last song we're going to hear? The last song is actually, I wanted to share a piece that's not from Zero. All good. Um, I was originally going to share... I was originally going to share something from the upcoming album. I'm working on an uh, upcoming album that... Hopefully will be available, not available, but be performing and sort of out in the world around January. Um, and I thought that could be like a good lead-in, but you know what? I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to play something older. Ooh. Uh, this is a piece that I wrote in 2013 called Die von Blumen Reich ich dir, which is the last line of a poem in German. And it's uh, the last line is, those of flowers are for you. Um, and I think what I want to say about this is I had written this a long time ago and then sort of didn't do anything with it, but I, I wrote it because I was really inspired by this pianist in the Netherlands named Dante Boone. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this piece, and I said, hey, look, I wrote this piece inspired by your concert. And he's, he's, um, he, he tours a lot, and he's a really good pianist. And he, he appreciated me being inspired by him so much that he performed it in Dusseldorf in 2016. And uh, after that performance, he also performed another composer's piece who I became friends with in New York and is now Matt and I's boss. So this, this piece that I'm about to play is literally responsible for me surviving in New York right now. That's amazing. Well, 
Coleman. It's been great to hear. Darren, stories. it's been awesome. Thank you for having us on thank here. Thank you so much, Matt. You too, Dangerbird. Thank you as always. Thank you for listening to Snacky Tunes. We'll be back next week. Here we go. One last performance here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.